and some people can see better than others. <laughs> anyway, thank you for being here this morning. I'm glad that you uh, are here, and perhaps some of you might have been here several Sundays ago when I spoke, and I uh, hope that this morning will be a help to us. The uh, message that I want to uh, bring this morning, I have entitled very simply, Whose, Whose Crown Are We? Now, standing alone by itself, that might seem like a rather strange expression, and I recognize that. But uh, hopefully it will make more sense as we go further in. So let me begin a different way, not talking about a crown at this particular moment, but talking about uh, somebody else. Someone that I happen to have been introduced to a number of years ago. So let me ask this question. How many of you are familiar to some degree or another with C.S. Lewis? Oh, good, good, a number. How many of you know what C and the S stand for? Okay, Clive Staple. How would you like to have as your second name Staple? And someone would be always saying, you mean the kind of thing that you pound on to connect pieces of paper, you know? Anyway, uh, Clive Staple Lewis. I became acquainted with him long before I can count how far back it went. I, I have no idea when I really heard of C.S. Lewis for the first time. Uh, but I was introduced to him by certain literature. Uh, some of you are familiar with books like Mere Christianity. Some of you have read that, I suspect. Some of you perhaps have read some of his, uh, his fantasy works, or your children have read them, or you have read them to them, or however that might go. That's how my daughters got involved with C.S. Lewis, by reading some of the Narnia series and that type of literature fantastic pieces of literature. I really didn't get into that fantasy world of C.S. Lewis until after I had been introduced to other works. Uh, for an example, uh, this will say something about me, and I recognize the book entitled The Problem of Pain, or his book entitled Miracles, um, God in the Dock. By the way, Dock. God in the dock, that means sort of like at a shipyard where he's, he's at the dock. What would God in a dock refer to? to turn, turn that into American English, what would that be? Pardon me? It would be the same as God on trial. The dock is what the Brits refer to as the courtroom. So God in the courtroom, God on dock, in the dock. And anyway, and then finally I really branched out a little bit later in my life and read a book he wrote entitled, Till We Have Faces. And I thought, Till We Have Faces? When I look in a mirror, I can see a face. So what, what's going on here, you know? Well, I was fascinated by the title, and I read the book, and I happened to be alone when I finished the book in a little town called Lock Haven, Pennsylvania, which was where my my in-laws were living at that particular time. And when I finished the book, I was alone in the house and tears were just running down my face when I finished that book. 
it told this story. It took an old uh, Greek uh, myth and retold the story into a Christian form. Tremendous. You know, Lewis was an English professor at Cambridge and, and Oxford. That was really what he did to put bread on the table. I mean, he was an incredibly, incredibly brilliant person. Um, and his children's literature, of course, show all of that. He was also famous in some of that kind of literature for certain statements. Let me just mention a few of these. They sort of refer to figurative language. And that's what we're going to be getting into in a moment. Figurative language uh, in, in the Bible, in the book of Philippians. But we'll turn to that in a moment. At one particular point in uh, one of his books, Mere Christianity, in this particular case, he refers to theology and maps. Most of, some of you guys have GPS in your, in your car. We use Google for maps, you know, and everything like that. At one point, Lewis talks about theology and maps. And he says, theology is like, good theology is like having a good map. Because theology is meant to keep you on track when you're thinking about God and about us, ourselves. You know, what good would it be to be trying to follow a bad map to get someplace? Well, you know how that goes. So theology and maps, a very interesting uh, figurative language use by, by Lewis. In uh, Mere Christianity, and I'm going to come to this later a little bit here, he refers to music and the piano keys. And he talks about the notes, you know, bum, 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 the same note kind of a thing. But he talks about notes as being without moral character to them. In other words, an A, a B, a C, a D, an E, an F, a G, and then I think you start again at A, if I'm not mistaken. But you go up, you know, and you have your octave, and then the octave repeats itself. But the point is, on a keyboard... There is no such thing as a right or a wrong note. What makes the note right or wrong is whether you have played the note that's on the score. Because some notes don't fit in that score, so you don't touch them. But the whole point was the notes are amoral. They have no moral character. What gives them morality is the score that they should be playing at any particular moment. That's when they're right or wrong. Now, he sets that in a very interesting context. It's the context of, of not having uh, any kind of morality or all moralities are the same or our instincts. He talks about herd instincts. And so how do you vary between these various instincts that we have? Because we have a variety of them. And anyway, he uses this notes on a piano to talk about the right way to do things. But, of course, let me read something for you. This comes from one of his uh, Narnia series books. You remember the a lion named Aslan? Remember Aslan? Listen to this. Oh, I just, I can picture it. This comes from Prince Caspian. 
and Lucy and Aslan are having a little conversation. Lucy begins, Aslan, Aslan, dear Aslan, sobbed Lucy, at last. The great beast rolled over on his side, so on his side, so that Lucy fell, half sitting and half lying between his front paws. He, Aslan, bent forward and just touched her nose with his tongue. His warm breath came all around her. She gazed up into the large, wise face of Aslan. Welcome, child, he said. Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. That is because you are older, little one. Not because you are bigger? I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Isn't that a fascinating thought? God doesn't change, but our ability to understand him grows. And as that grows, he seems bigger than he seemed when we were younger. What a fascinating way to incorporate basic theology into a child's book. Tremendous. That was Lewis, figurative language. Well, I want us to turn to Philippians chapter 4, where we're going to look at some figurative language. And by the way, while you're turning to that, let me remind us that uh, the Apostle Paul, and certainly C.S. Lewis, weren't the only people to use figurative language. Our Savior was a master at figurative language. Uh, remember when he talks about... Uh, forgiving someone 490 times or he talks about uh, someone plucking out their eye or having their hands cut off or some of this other incredibly figurative language of Jesus well here in Philippians chapter 4 I want you to look with me at verses 1 through 9 we're going to focus basically on one expression out of the first verse, but we will get to the others real quickly and hopefully profitably. But here's what Paul says. I'm reading, by, by the way, from the New English Version. So if you're reading another version, as you're following me, just be aware that there might be some slight variations. Okay? Verse 1, Philippians 4. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Eodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind 
in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my trusted companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard you, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. There is tremendous figurative language in this particular text we just looked at. But the one that I want us to think about is the word crown back in verse 1. But did you pick up the, 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 the empathy and the closeness that Paul felt with the Philippians in this language that he was using? Would you guys ever talk to your, um, among yourselves like Paul was talking to the Philippians? Maybe, but probably not. Uh, just sort of is a little bit... We would feel strained if we had to talk. If I had to talk to Frank, for an example, the way he's talking to the Philippians, I don't think that I would express myself the way he was expressing. It just isn't who I am. It, you know, we're, we're different. But he talks like this, but... He talks about the Philippians being a crown. In the time of Paul, we think maybe a crown, like the crown of thorns on Jesus' head. A crown was something that a person wore because other people thought that that crown was setting that person apart. So maybe it would be the crown on the head of an emperor. That crown could be quite glorious. It maybe is made out of gold and it might have jewels in it. It could be like the laurel leaves that a, an Olympic or athletic person had gained by winning a competition. And, of course, it might have been the crown that Jesus wore because the Romans said, that's what's worthy for him. Do you get the irony there? He's not worth any more than 
a crown of thorns on his head. But nonetheless, it's something that a person would have on their head which would designate their value or lack of it, as in the case of Jesus. And Paul says in verse 1 that we, or the Philippians, were the crown that Paul wore on his head. The Philippians are Paul's crown. Now that's a strange figure of speech, isn't it? Because how many of us would picture climbing up on somebody's head to make a statement about their importance? I think about the last time anyone sat on my head, it was when my brother and I were wrestling or something like that. And that was certainly not meant to be a compliment. It was meant to be a sign of domination. But a crown on somebody's head... That's who the Philippians are for Paul. In other words, to call them my crown is not only making a statement about Paul, but it's also making a statement about the Philippians. Because once you take out the the figurative language element in human relationships, for someone to become the crown for somebody else... Doesn't that involve the person who's willing to be the crown? See, so you're getting some interesting dynamic happening here with the use of this imagery, a crown. They are Paul's crown. Let me go a little bit further now when we're trying to get this part established here. We, as Christians, uh, are not individual islands. No man is an island. You're familiar with that expression by an English poet. And because we are not islands here and there with water surrounding us, etc., etc., we are part of a group. We've talked about this. Pastor Paul has talked about it recently, of course. But because we are not an island, we are in interrelationships, we are part of a body. And they contribute to us and we contribute to them. And now Paul is drawing the idea that Philippians are the crown on Paul's head and the Philippians if they have never heard Paul say this before, and I don't know, they're now having to think, boy, what is Paul just telling me about myself? I have to be willing to be his crown. My relationship has to include that element of making somebody else, or if not making them important, pointing it out to everybody else that they're important. Think of the, think of the context here a little bit. When we think of the Apostle Paul, here in a church like this, I have a sus- 
suspicion that most of us think of the Apostle Paul as being a quite admirable and worthy person. And I think we're correct. But in the time of Paul, Paul was no more well accepted by the powers in power than Jesus was accepted by the powers in power. Jesus died on a cross. Paul died by losing his head. And both of them had that happen to them by the powers. In other words, there weren't very many people who would be willing to say, I am a crown on the Apostle Paul's head. But the Philippians are hearing Paul say, you are my crown. And I think that you admit to that. You recognize that. I um, had, when I was in Argentina, a, an interesting situation of this whole idea of somebody being the crown of someone else. When, I, when Joyce and I arrived in Argentina, we met a couple who currently live over in the Grand Rapids, Michigan area. Ruth and Dick, Richard or Ricardo in Argentina. And uh, Ricardo eventually became an Alliance missionary once he was in Argentina, he went through the process, blah, blah, blah. But he was the music director at our college. A tremendously capable choir director and musician. He was not a keyboardist. He, uh, his wife was. He sang, he was a vocalist. But his forte was choir directing. He could make the most unpromising group of people into a beautifully sounding choir. How he did it, I have no idea. But he got it out of them. Now, I want you to picture Ricardo in a large room, maybe about, oh, I don't know, a little bit larger than this. Yeah, it'll be larger than this somewhat. The choir's up here in the front, and uh, Ricardo is ready to bring them in on a song, okay? And so, Ricardo has his hands up, the intro to the piece has been played, and he brings his hands down to bring in the choir, silence. Ricardo gets a puzzled look on his face, obviously. We can't see it because we're behind him, but the choir could see it. What's going on here? As we do in Spanish, que te pasa, que te pasa. And so he would bring in his hands up, bring up his hands again to bring in the choir, the introduction, lower his hands and boom, and silence all over again. 
What is poor Ricardo facing? He is facing an uncooperative choir, <laughs> to say it at least. <laughs> They're in revolt. They're in rebellion. They're playing coup, C-O-U-P, in Argentina. The people revolt. <coughs> now, what was happening here? Well, you get down under the fact that the choir wasn't doing what Ricardo wanted them to do. At that particular moment, the relationship between Ricardo and the choir was fractured. And the whole prelude of rapport that had been developed between Ricardo and the group was no longer functioning because, because, in essence, even though Ricardo was the director and he was recognized as, out of all of the members and the director and the other people involved in the concert, Ricardo was at the top of the heap. But the choir was the crown on Ricardo's head. They were who made Ricardo have value. They set him apart. They recognized it, and that's why they could revolt. Now, this is all fictitious, please. That never happened. Someone asked me about that after the first service. I said, no, 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 never happened, never happened. But, the, but you get the point. To be someone's crown, you have to be willing to give them the honor and recognize their value and their importance, just as the choir did with Ricardo. That is what's involved in the dynamic of a, of a church. That's what's involved in the dynamic of a family. We are family. And we give respect and honor to others of our family. We are their crown. And they are our crown. It's mutual. How, um, how does this one sound to you? Maybe you've had a similar experience. This past week, on, well, last Sunday after the morning service, I drove over to Ohio, to Wadsworth, Ohio. My sister lives there, and uh, she wanted me to attend as a birthday gift from her to me, a concert by a group called the Piano Guys. Have you ever heard of them? Oh. Go check them out on, 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 on uh, YouTube. Incredible. But they were having a concert there in, in Cleveland, and she got the tickets, and so we drove up to the concert on Tuesday night. Spectacular. And I continued afterward another day or so and 
When we were home then, Connie, my sister and I, were starting to go through some materials that survived from, were there still in the home from the time of my parents' passing. They died two months apart. They had been married over 60 years or so. And when my mother passed away, my father pretty much gave up. And two months later, he was gone. It didn't surprise any of us. They were just like two peas in a pod and... No. But anyway, there were some items there that no, none of the rest of the family had ever looked at. And uh, Connie asked if, uh, he, if I and she could go through some of these items. And we found a selection of uh, journals and diaries and things my mother had been writing in. Neither of us had ever looked at any of this before. I don't think anybody had. I don't even know if my father had ever looked at them. Well, my mother was the person who led me to the Lord when I was a young kid. I, she's always occupied a sweet spot in my life. What you going to do? I loved her with all my heart. But there were things about her I never knew. But I found out as we were starting to read through these little, I mean, it could be a little, a little journal, it could be like a date book, and anything could become a diary for her. But she not only just wrote stuff that was happening in her life, she also, quite periodically, would have little notebooks that, where she would have a chapter like Philippians 1 and Philippians 2, Philippians 3, Philippians 4. And then she would write down her generated outline and comments on that chapter in this journal. Notebook after notebook after notebook after notebook, years, decades after decades, and she was doing it for her own spiritual life. And it was a way of re responding to God. You valued your word enough for it to go through all it went through to get to me. And I appreciate the word of God so much that I am going to learn all I can from it. And so here we are reading mother's bullet points and one, two, three, and A, B, C, D, write down the page. That'd be one chapter. Next, next chapter. I looked at my sister as we were looking at this. And when we were finished more or less, I turned to Connie and I said, you know, I had no idea. I have just seen over these last 24 hours my mother like I have never seen her before. No wonder people wanted her to lead Bible studies for them. No wonder she was valued as a person who knew God. She was the lady who led me to the Lord. And now I am seeing her 
in a new way. But that's not the end of the story. Because my mother's heritage included the fact that her father, now we're going back, her father was the man who read through the Bible over the course of a year, 60-some times. Can you imagine reading the Bible 60 times, one year after another, after another, after another, after another? Can you imagine what that finally does to your categories of thought? You actually start thinking biblically. Because it's your phraseology, it's your vocabulary, it's your way of looking at life. And he valued God's word to the point where he just absorbed it. And my mother took that and did it. And that becomes, or those people become, the ones on whose head I want to sit as a crown. Because I want my life to be the verification of the value that they put on God and God's word and Christ's relationship and we become one together. Now let me make a switch. Let's switch to the last part of of the text that we read. You'll notice as you look, if you want to open your scripture there for a moment, you'll notice that through verses, starting with verse 2, and on down through verse um, at least 7, maybe 8, you will find five virtues that Paul wants these Philippians to exhibit. Okay, let's just point them out here real quickly just to be sure that we're all tracking on the same page. In verse 1, steadfastness. Verse 2, unity. Verse 3, joy. No, excuse me, that's verse 4. Verse 5, gentleness. Verse 6, prayer. See those five? I refer to them to maintain some coherence here with the imagery that I've been talking with. I'm calling those five jewels that would be on the crown. Now I know that Paul's not saying that, but just sort of give me a little bit of liberty here. Because these are the things that the people wearing the crown should be showing, exhibiting. So we're just sort of going to incorporate that into the crown. And so that is what they should show. But, but, they are a unit. The Philippians should not and would not, I think, have said, I think I'll specialize on one of these or two of them. Because Paul is writing all of it for all of them. Isn't there an expression sort of like a Johnny one note? The person, a, music, a, music who, a musician who can only play one note on one instrument, a Johnny one note, 
that one, I'm looking at people's faces and I'm not getting much of a feedback here, so I'm guessing that that must be a new expression. I'm not, I'm not sure here. The Johnny one. Some people are like that. The only note they play in life is that one note. And from the time that they were a kid till the time they die, they only plucked one note. That was the one thing that, everything revolved around that one little note. Instead of putting it all together and forming a package. Now, how important is that? Well, I'm going to ask Ron's up here. I've talked with him before, and he's going to, we're going to try something here. I hope it works. Okay. Um, the idea is to bring these five virtues together on a crown so that the crown you're wearing or the other person's wearing is beautiful. So I'm asking Ron now, and tying it to music, tying it to music. Ron, uh, put your finger on C and just sustain it. Jack the volume up some here. A little bit more. A little bit more. A little bit more. I'm deaf. Okay, that's good. Oh, now, was that music? Most of us would say no. We could hear that out of a steamship in, in, in New York Harbor. Okay, one note sustained is sound. There's not music. Okay, Ron, uh, break up that sound into uh, beats of, no, of notes of different lengths. Could be halves, it could be full, it could be quarter, eighth, sixteenth, whatever you want to do, but still stay on the C note. Here comes the bright Okay, now, the point is, what he played, had that become music yet? No, no more than perhaps a Morse code on a key just by having a variation is music. It's sound, controlled sound, but is it music? No. When, okay, now, when does all of this that Ron is doing become music? Ron, here's where I'm taking a risk, but I know that Ron is very capable. Ron, convert that C into music. Okay, now, now we have a chord. But the chord can be part of a score. You want to play a little something in the key of C that would be more than just a chord? Are we in music yet now? See, music is... Music is more than one note. 
Music is a combination, maybe of instruments, of timing, of crescendo, diminishing it down, bringing it up, fleshing it out, until you finally have Rachmaninoff's concerto. Which is really what just composed of a bunch of notes. No, but it's more than notes. It's a combination. It's a bringing it together. Paul mentions five virtues. We are to wear them. They are to be part of the crown that is sitting on Paul's head. And my suggestion is that we take those virtues and let them become music. More, a little less, different proportions, different melodies. But so we have things that are generating and there's life, not just sounds. If we're going to be somebody's crown, this might sound silly, if we're going to be somebody's crown, let's make sure that their wearing the crown makes life interesting. It should. After all, Jesus was a pretty interesting person. And so should we be. Unified around him, and I sit on one person's head and another person sits over there and we are all pointing to the value and the importance of the other person. Okay? Let's pray. Father God, we are what you have created for this time and place. We have been given the opportunity to be crowns on other people's heads. We want to point to their importance and to their value. We want to accept this calling that you have given to us as an honorable one. One that points to the Christian community as something that the world not only needs, but which will benefit the world. Create in us a sense of importance, not false and not cocky, but realistic importance, and allow us to be the crown that points to other people's value. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.